Luke chapter 5, verse 15. And it says, however, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. In the preceding verses, a leprous man who was considered unclean pursuant to the law He approached Jesus, asked if he would heal him. Jesus said, I am willing. He touched him, and he healed him. And he went to the priest, and he showed himself. And after this amazing, marvelous healing of this leprous man, we read in verse 15. I'm going to read it again. The report went around concerning him all the more. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. The title here today is The Praying Christ. The Praying Christ. Let's pray right now. Lord, I pray that you would bless us here today in the reading of your word, in the application of your word. Let your word become a greater light to us. I pray, Jesus, that we would see the absolute importance and necessity of personal prayerfulness. Give us a devotion life, a prayer life that we haven't had before. Our very lives depend upon it, even the lives of our children depend upon it, not because it's a work, but because it's the primary way by which you give us everything you have for us, God. Show us the importance of prayer by looking at your life, Jesus. Open our eyes here today and let us be motivated by your life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If any of you are familiar with a particular business in America called the Masterclass Series, how many of you on maybe YouTube, you've seen a, you've seen a uh, commercial, or on Facebook, it is an online video series um, that is a recording of a multitude of experts from all kinds of fields. And it's an education platform on which any person can pay a particular fee. And if they're interested in science or writing or movie and theater or photography, they can watch this masterclass series and they can watch an expert of that field give um, their best pointers, if you will, for a person who's interested in that field of interest. And, and in this master class series, there's, there's series on film and TV, on music and entertainment, if you're interested in being an artist, a singer, if you're interested in being in the movie business, there's, there's, a, there's a master class on the culinary arts, all things cooking. I mean, there's expert cookers and, and chefs, chefs on there who are giving all kinds of of explanations and advice. There's business people, there's political people, there's people who are experts in writing. There is sports masterclass. Stephen Curry is on there showing you how to be an NBA superstar, I assume. Anybody seen this, this masterclass? Go online and Google it. I've seen many, many commercials for it online. If you're interested in design or photography or fashion, there's an expert for that. If you're interested in science and technology, Uh, Maybe Neil uh, uh, deGrasse Tyson can teach you something. He's on there. He's a famous scientist. And so the idea is that if you want to learn something, 
You go to the best person. You go to the expert who can teach you how to enter this field or how to better hone your craft. You go to the experts. If I wanted to learn how to shoot a basketball or a free throw, I'm going to go to who probably? Who do y'all say? Michael Jordan. If I want to learn to be the best quarterback that I can, who's the best? Who's the GOAT? Tom Brady, yes. He's got six Super Bowl rings to prove it, and the guy's over 40. If, if you wanted to learn swimming, if you're into that, Michael Phelps might be the best person to go to. Whatever the field is, the interest that you have, go to the expert. Go to the expert. And if there were to be a master class on prayer, I would go to the expert, which is Jesus. I would go to the one who gives us the best example of what prayer is and how to pray, how to approach the throne of God. And it's such a wonderful thing when we look at the book of Luke in particular The book of Luke, unlike any of the other three Gospels, gives us a huge amount of documentation and details for the prayer life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the book of Luke is also called the Gospel of Prayer because there are so many uh, recordings of the life of Jesus in regards to prayer. And so our knowledge of the prayer life of Jesus is mostly owed to Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts. Matthew and Mark, of course, record Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. And John records the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. Additionally, Matthew records another instance, and Mark references two more instances. But aside from that, that's as many times as the three other Gospels reference the prayer life of Jesus. There's upwards of ten or to 15 references to the prayer life of Jesus. Either references that he prayed, or it actually gives documentation of the exact thing that he prayed to the Father. The Gospel of Luke is the Gospel of prayer. We can learn many, time, many things from this. And Luke's emphasis on the prayer life of Jesus is in accordance with one of the predominant themes of his Gospel, which is Jesus as the Son of of man. The term son of man is used 26 times in the gospel of Luke. And it would do us much good to understand what are the prevailing or predominant themes for each of the gospel accounts because each author of the gospels had an intended audience and an intended message they wanted to get across in regards to the person of Jesus Christ. And so where the gospel of Matthew highlights Jesus as the king And Mark highlights Jesus as the servant. And John highlights Jesus as the son of God. Luke highlights Jesus as the son of man. And we know, if you're a student of the Bible, that son of man is a messianic title. Which is drawn from the book of Daniel. And it identifies Jesus as the ideal man. As the perfect savior of imperfect humankind. So in one sense, drawn from the book of Daniel, Jesus is the Son of Man representing the perfect man who can die for imperfect humankind. 
However, the term son of man also emphasizes the humanity of Christ. Because in the book of Ezekiel, God reverts to Ezekiel the prophet 93 times as the son of man. So it's, 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 there's, a, there's a multiple or there's two meanings to this understanding of son of man. It's a messianic title, but it also reveals to us the humanity of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, when you read the, the gospel of Luke, the theme of Jesus being the son of man is further indicated by the genealogy that Luke gives us. In Luke's genealogy for the descent of Jesus, his ancestry, he traces, he traces our Lord's descent to Adam and not to Abraham. Luke gives us the best story of his birth and gives all we know of Jesus as a child, which records his growth and wisdom and stature and brings attention to the minute points regarding his true manhood, as well on the compassion and tenderness and the universality of his work. Jesus is presented as a very compassionate, tender Savior who has come to save all men, not just, not just the Jew, but all men. So there's a universe, there's a theme of the universality of his redemptive work in all the earth, having come to save all men. And so the humanity of Jesus brings him very near to us, doesn't it? When you consider the humanity of Jesus, when you read every Christmas the nativity account, the account of Jesus being born, being wrapped in swaddling clothes, put into a manger, living a life, growing in stature. We learn about 12-year-old Jesus, and we learn that he grew in stature and wisdom and favor with men. And we see all kinds of minute details regarding the life of Jesus, the real human life of Jesus. We read throughout the Gospels, including Luke, how he became wearied and hungry. And when we read in John chapter 11, Jesus wept. What is more human than that? At his birth, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know what that represents to me? He's wearing a diaper. His body, his body worked just like yours and mine. He digested food just like you and me. And so his mother put a diaper on him. She put him in clothes so he wouldn't get cold. He was subject to all of the earthly elements just as you and I are. That makes the humanity of Christ very real, doesn't it? Think about this. When he would go and work outside, possibly as a carpenter with his earthly father, Joseph, or when he was traveling, he would sweat and he had body odor. My Lord Jesus. He might have even, now don't judge me for this, do not jump to conclusions, listen very closely, listen very closely, he might have even gotten sick. The Bible tells us that he became a man as all of us are, and he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. Sickness is not sin, in the same way that weariness and hunger and digestion of food is not sin. He made himself subject to every single facet of human existence. And though he healed any person he came in contact with, and the leprosy never jumped on him, he always healed people, he willingly made himself in every facet of life, he made himself submitted to the entire human experience, except 
he never sinned. Never sinned. Think about that. And so it would follow that Luke would bring attention to, I believe, the most precious indicator of his humanity. And that is his constant prayerfulness. If anything points to the nature of humanness that he took on in the flesh, in addition to all these things I just described, it would also be that Jesus prayed. Think about that statement. Jesus prayed. And as we look at our text here, Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke tells us, in light of his increasing fame and his ministry to needy people, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This word, often, it's not necessarily indicated in the translation of the King James, but this word, often, it is in the Greek verb tense, indicating that Jesus habitually withdrew for prayer. Whether if he was praying before the day started or for extended seasons of prayer throughout the entire night, the fact is that he did this very often. He would withdraw himself from normal everyday life and be alone with the Father. And it is the, the Gospel of Luke which records most of all than the, any of the other Gospels how that he so often withdrew. He so often withdrew. And it is of absolute paramount that you and I, we pray often. Often. Not just a few moments before you go to bed, but we pray Often, E.M. Bounds, who I think is one of the greatest writers on the subject of prayer, he writes, if one would be much for God, he must be much with God. He also further indicates this, we would not have any think that the value of anyone's prayers is to be measured by the clock. So the amount of time we spend in prayer is not a matter of rule and regulation. All right, I tick this off my to-do list, okay? I'm going to spend one hour with prayer, now God's pleased with me. It has nothing to do with that. It's not about that. And he's saying, don't get this misconstrued about we must be often with the Lord. We would not have anything that the value of their prayers is to be measured by the clock, but our purpose is to impress on our minds the necessity of being much alone with God. And that if this feature has not been produced by our faith, then our faith is feeble, feeble and surface type. If you will be much with or for God, you must be much with God. That is, you have to spend time with him. And Jesus, God incarnate, would often withdraw. He would withdraw. He would intentionally retreat in, a phys in his physical presence. He would retreat from the place of ministry or the busyness of life. He would withdraw from friends, family, disciples, and the crowds. And don't you know, we must do the same. How many of you know you have to withdraw from your kids? You've got to withdraw from your spouse. You've got to withdraw from your career or your job. 
You've got to withdraw from the responsibilities of life. You even must withdraw from the work of ministry. You must withdraw completely from that place of busyness or ministry or responsibility and retreat with intention to a place that he he says next that is a lonely place. He would often withdraw to lonely places. And we learn, we learn that his favorite place to pray if he was in the vicinity was the Mount of Olives. Did you know that the Garden of Gethsemane is there at the bottom of the Mount of Olives? And do you know that's where Jesus ascended? And do you know in his second coming, his feet will touch the ground at the Mount of Olives? And that mountain will be split in two and made into two mountains when Jesus comes back in his glory for the millennial reign. It's the Mount of Olives that he, he, he really, really enjoy praying at the Mount of Olives and oftentimes in the Garden of Gethsemane. As a matter of fact, how did Judas know where Jesus was going to be? Because he was often there. If Jesus was in the vicinity of Jerusalem, and if you don't see him in Jerusalem, he's not at someone's house, he's going to be at the Mount of Olives. He's going to be praying. He would go to a lonely place or a wilderness place or a desert place or an isolated place. That's all it means whether it was the Mount of Olives or anywhere else. No matter where he was, he always retreated to a lonely place. I want you to notice that Jesus did not retreat to a lonely place to distract himself from his weariness with more distraction or activity. He did not retreat to a lonely place for more to distract himself from the weariness of his duties with more distraction and activity. But he went to a secluded, isolated place that were proved to be the most unhindered setting for prayer. When I go to my office in the morning, I will either spend time, if I wake up extra early at my house, I'll pray at home. Or when I get to my office in the morning, I will, I will, the first thing I do is I will pray. And I put my phone on silent, I put it across the room, and I turn it over on its face, and I will not touch it. Because I will be distracted if that thing goes off. Sometimes I I go outside if I'm distracted by my office. I have a wonderful place to pray near my office. And and I like to walk and pray a lot of times. But it's very important that you remove all distractions and you go to a lonely place. It's lonely in one sense, but it's not lonely because you're with the Lord. And And if you will not go to a lonely place, you cannot be alone with the Lord. So it's of utmost importance that we remove all those distractions. And notice, here's what he would often withdraw to a lonely place to do. He did not retreat to a lonely place to merely relax in order to clear his head from the day's activities. He would withdraw to a lonely place and pray. He would go to a lonely place and pray. He would not go to a lonely place to be refreshed with woodworking or fishing or hiking or whatever a first century Jew did for entertainment. He did not wind down by going to catch some fish or do some woodworking. No, he got away. He isolated himself. He went to the wilderness. He withdrew from all distractions and people to pray. To pray. 
And it's good for us to relax. It's good for us to decompress. But the greatest way you can decompress is not at a spa. It's not in front of the television. It's not a phone in your hand. It's not more conversation with friends. It's being alone in the presence of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, he did that often. He did it all the time. So he didn't go to the spa or play video games or get on social media. He went to the presence of God and simply stated, prayer is communion with God. It's as simple as that. Prayer is communion with God. And we, as believers in Jesus Christ, through his blood, have been granted access into the presence of God where we can now have fellowship, where once it was broken in the garden by sin, Jesus took sin upon himself so that this fellowship, this fellowship could be accomplished for us through the work of Jesus Christ. And communion with a holy God is the highest privilege for lowly sinful creatures such as you and I. What a marvelous thought that we have been invited to fellowship with a holy, righteous God who has created all things. And I can have a personal relationship in the same way I have a personal, intimate relationship with my wife. It's just as real with God. And if I will know him, I must be with him. And if he will strengthen me and help me and encourage me and lead me, I must be with him. I must be with him. We have the glorious opportunity to speak to the eternal and holy God who is our Father. And not only that, but to listen because he speaks to us. Not only do you speak to him and present your needs, he will speak to you. He will place his heart and his mind and his presence in your life. And God is intent on using prayer as the means to do that. To convey his very life into your life. And so if you will allow me very quickly, I, I, I don't want this to be overly exhaustive. But the premise for today's message, it is formed by this simple question based upon Luke 5.16. The premise for this message is this. Why did Jesus often withdraw to a lonely place and pray? And I believe in answering that prayer or that, that question, in answering that question, why did he often withdraw? I believe it will show us the immense importance for us as well to do this. My objective today is not to overwhelm you with a bunch of facts regarding the prayer life of Jesus. You can read the Gospels for yourself and read all these accounts and these facts but my hope is that the careful observation of his prayer life here today would reveal to us in the spirit our immense need for him and produce in us an overwhelming desire to be in his presence. Because if Jesus did, so must I. If Jesus did, so must I. So why did Jesus pray so much. I could go on for days. I want to highlight five things that I have written down here. 
and I want to go through them pretty quick. I don't want to get too exhaustive, too overwhelming with information, but I just want you to get an overwhelming sense of the life of Jesus which was steeped in prayer and allow it to affect you to the point that you go, oh my goodness, I need God all the more. I need, I need to withdraw myself. I need to be in a lonely place. The first priority is not family and church. It's God. My first priority of the day, it must be his presence. In the same way we schedule important things in our lives, we must schedule with intentionality a life of prayer in the presence of God. It must be foremost in our lives. And so, number one, Jesus always prayed because he was a man. Jesus always prayed because he was a man. All of us know that Jesus was simultaneously fully God and fully man. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us, gives us a beautiful picture of the condescension of Christ from earth or from heaven down to earth. He says in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The moment that Jesus took on the form of a bondservant, the moment that he took on human flesh, there was a union of two natures in the one body of Jesus Christ. Jesus has eternally existed as the Son, but Jesus in bodily form did not exist until he was conceived in Mary's womb. And when he took upon himself human flesh, there was, and it's extremely hard for my mind to understand it, there was this merger or this combination that never intermingled with themselves, but in Jesus was a full, the full representation of humanity and the full representation of divinity. He was fully God, fully man. You see Jesus referred to as the God-man. And, and there's a theological term for this. The union of divinity and humanity in the person of Jesus. It's called the hypostatic union. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? You're like, what is that? It's just simply a term that has been phrased, having to do with the Greek understanding of the word. It's, it's, it's a term to try to understand the, the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. It describes the mysterious joining of the divine and the human in one person of Jesus, the God-man. Jesus had two complete natures, one fully divine and the other fully human. Jesus is not two persons. He's not two persons. He's one person with two natures. And these two natures are now, even now, forever inseparable. Even the glorified Christ, he was glorified in that body that Mary gave him. But it's a glorified body now. But for all, it's inseparable now. The humanity and the divinity of Christ. Jesus was always, has always been God, but he did not become a human until he was conceived in Mary. And we learn in Hebrews that Jesus became a human being in order to identify with us in our struggles. And as we read in Hebrews 2.17, therefore in all things, he had to be made like 
his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus, he willfully made himself subject to certain limitations in his humanity. But he never surrendered his divinity. And you see in the life of Jesus, he willfully restricted himself by the limitations of his humanity, but not all the time. Because Jesus walked on water, didn't he? He, he, he multiplied loaves and fishes. He, 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 though physically he willfully submitted himself to weariness and hunger and all these things, he still exhibited his divine nature so that he could glorify the Father and point all people to the redemptive plan in himself. When you look at this hypostatic union, how is there both divine and humanness in Jesus? And he's fully God, fully human. It's like the Trinity. I can't understand it. I cannot fully wrap my mind around it when you really start to think about it and delve into it. But here is my point. Jesus was a man. And he willfully made himself subject to the human experience. And included in that, he willfully made himself dependent upon the Father in his humanity. In his humanity. That's amazing to me. Have you ever heard this before? A day without prayer is a boast against God. A day without prayer is a boast against God. That's not to make us feel bad or feel condemned, but it's the truth. And Jesus making himself fully dependent, his life depended upon the Father, so he prayed. Because he was fully man. He was fully God. He was also fully man. And he exhibited himself absolute dependence upon the Father. And so, if Jesus willfully exposed himself to the same fleshly temptations we are exposed to every day, and he made himself subject to the limitations of a human body, it should indicate to us that we must, because we are subject to the same temptations as mere human beings, you are weak in yourself, and you have no power to overcome, it should instill in us a desire to pray as well, shouldn't it? Because you're a mere woman and a mere man. You need God. I need God. I have no power or strength in myself. I'm going to try to go quickly through these. Number two, Jesus always prayed because the devil sought to foil God's plan. What happened when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist? As a matter of fact, right after he was baptized, he was praying. And the father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit drove him where? To the wilderness. And 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted. And after those 40 days, Satan came and he tempted him. In three separate ways, and in three separate ways, Jesus said, it is written. And he did not succumb to the temptations of Satan. But from the very beginning, Satan was there to foil the redemptive plan of God by trying to tempt Jesus to sin or to detract him from the work, and the will of the Father. And it tells us, now when the devil had entered, ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The devil didn't just stop there. He was continuously barraging Jesus with temptation, trying to distract him from the will of the Father. 
And after Jesus revealed to his disciples that he must be crucified and told them openly, how did Jesus, uh, Peter respond? He took Jesus aside and he said, Jesus, listen, no, this is not going to happen. You are not going to be crucified. And, and how, how, did, how did Jesus respond? Get behind me, not Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And Peter's words were the same diabolically inspired temptation to avoid suffering as part of his messianic vocation as he had heard in the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry. We understand that the devil entered Judas and betrayed him. It was the work of the devil to betray Jesus of his own disciple. And so likewise, because you are a child of God and a co-heir with Christ, the devil wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy the life of your precious children. And he plays for keeps. You cannot be so arrogant to think you're strong enough to defend yourself against the wiles of the devil. He has been, he has been tempting men much longer than you've been alive. And he knows how to tempt us. He knows how to trip us up. He wants to destroy your life as a roaring lion. He always goes about seeking whom he may devour. And as a thief, he wants to first remove the life of God in you and then destroy your life. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. Be vigilant. Be diligent. So likewise, we must pray because we have an adversary just like Jesus did, the devil. You're a co-heir with Christ, and his desire is to extinguish the life of Christ in you. But I'm so thankful that we are able to overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have an advocate in the Father, and because he is our champion, and he did not succumb to sin, I can go to him in prayer, and he will provide a means of escape from all temptation. Are you thankful for that? What a wonderful thing we have in prayer. In prayer. Number three, Jesus always prayed so he could minister. Listen to this closely. Jesus always prayed so he could minister, and Jesus prayed because he had ministered. Jesus always prayed so he could minister, and Jesus always prayed because he had ministered. As we read in our text, once the fame and reputation of Jesus spread, he was constantly barraged by the needs of people. He was constantly ministering to the needs and teaching to them. And what is so neat about the Gospel of Luke, you can actually see, you can actually see a, a, a habit in the life of Jesus. You can actually see in, in the way that Luke recorded the life of Jesus, you can actually see where Jesus goes out and he prays. People come to him, the multitudes come to him, he ministers the entire day, and then the whole narrative ends with Jesus going to pray again. You see this continuously in the life of Jesus. And when I say Jesus always prayed so he could minister, and Jesus always prayed because he had ministered, these two aspects go hand in hand because it's often cyclical, isn't it? Jesus always prayed so that he could go out and minister. And because he had ministered, it was of utmost importance that he go into the presence of God and be refreshed because he had expended all this spiritual energy. And then started over the next day. Started over the next day. We know that Jesus needed physical rest and nourishment. 
And so he did need spiritual rest and nourishment. He was always coming and going from the mountain, if you will. He never stayed on the mountain in prayer, and he never stayed in the village. He always went back and forth, back and forth. Of what good is it to the world if you go into a monastery and live as a monk the rest of your life? What good is that? And what good are you to your wife and your husband and your children if you never go to the mountain in the presence of God? How can you minister to the needs of your coworkers if you've not been with God? And Jesus realized, I need refreshment and strength and encouragement because I've been ministering. And you can see this. Um, even in Mark chapter 1, listen to this. Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And then Peter and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. <laughs> Again, because I'm my father now, I have all kinds of kid illustrations. But when you're at home with your children, you can't get away from them ever. You can't use the restroom in peace. Just being real with y'all. You can't take a shower. You can't just be alone. There are times I will get home and she says, bye. <laughs> Not that dramatic. But she's been with the kids all day. And many of you can relate to this if you've had kids. If you have kids. They're always needing, needing, needing. And that's how the people were. He had just, he had woken up before daylight. He'd been praying. Peter comes to him. Everybody's looking for you, man. Everybody's looking for you. You've got a lot of people to minister to. But you know what? Jesus was ready, wasn't he? Jesus was ready to minister because he prepared himself for the day in prayer in the presence of the Father. And then after ministering, during a day, Jesus would also, would also often retreat to a lonely place with God for spiritual refreshment and strength. And what is so neat, if you read in Matthew 14, where it talks about after Jesus had heard about the death of John the Baptist, he went and departed by the boat and to, went to a deserted place by himself. But then all the people followed him. And then he had compassion upon the people. He got the bread and, and, and uh, the fishes. He multiplied it. He fed everybody that day. The day was dwindling down. He ministered to people. He had uh, uh, prayed for people. He had healed people. He had spent all day ministering. Now, all those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. In verse 22 of chapter 14 of Matthew says, Immediately Jesus made, he made, he commanded his disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side, and he sent the multitudes away. And what did Jesus do? And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. That narrative starts with Jesus praying, and it ends, Jesus prayed. I think that's amazing. I think that is just phenomenal. What a wonderful picture in the life of Jesus. Oh, how much more do I need the presence of God? How much more do I need to be in his presence so that I can meet the needs of those around me? Not in my own power, but in the power that God provides to us. And then after I've expended myself, listen, any Sunday for a minister, though it looks like I'm not doing much over here, there's a lot of spiritual energy expended. 
A lot of hours of study and prayer have gone into this moment right here, this holy moment of preaching the Word of God. And I will tell you, every Sunday afternoon, I am zapped. And I'm only preaching one, one message on a Sunday. And then I'm preaching on Wednesday. And this applies to all preachers, but all preachers can understand this. Or if you've ever ministered in any capacity and met the needs of people, it zaps you. It's of utmost importance that you retreat back into the presence of God to be refreshed, strengthened, and encouraged. Number four, Jesus always prayed because he was intent on doing the will of the Father. Jesus said in, in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 6.38, he said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the God-man speaking making himself dependent upon the Father, desiring to please the Father, knowing he had come here for a special work. His food was to do the will of the Father, and if he didn't do the will of the Father, he was a failure. And in his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. I'm about to die. I'm about to be offered up. I'm about to go through this agonizing pain the sin of, the, of all the world placed upon me. You're going to forsake me. I'm going to die. And he says, the hour has come. And what does Jesus say to the Father? Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. His food was to do the will of the Father. At the very end of his life, facing the cross, he said, God, you be glorified. Your will be done in my life. I don't want to suffer. Because in his humanity, he felt every lashing. He felt the thorns on his head. He felt the spear in his side, the nails in his hands and his feet. He felt all of it, and he died. His hum in his human body, he died. And it says in the garden, he fell on his face. He prayed great drops of blood and being so much, in so much agony. He said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And, and, and then here, here it is. Here's, here's the nail in the coffin for the devil. When he's upon the cross, you know the last prayer that Jesus prayed? As a matter of fact, there are seven statements of Jesus upon the cross, and there's three prayers. You know the last thing he prayed to the Father? What he prayed for anyone to hear? So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. As a declaration as an acknowledgement, I have finished the will of the Father. And bowing down his head, he gave up his spirit. And likewise, we should always pray so that God's will can come to pass in our lives and his work may be accomplished. I end with this last one. Number five, Jesus always prayed. You can never forget this for yourself and for Jesus. Jesus always prayed because he loved the Father. Jesus willfully submitted himself to the Father. He was not forced to. And when you look at the Trinity, there, there, there is this headship, isn't there? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and, and they're, they're, they're co-equal. They're eternally equal, but there is this willful submission, if you will. The Spirit desires to glorify Jesus. The Son desires to glorify the Father. And it was Jesus, it was the love of Jesus for the Father that ultimately drove him to his presence, 
a dependence upon him, and a desire to please him. We read in John 14, 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. John 17, 26, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father. And it must be the same with us. It must be the same with us. Imagine I get home with a bouquet of flowers for Kimberly, which she deserves. And to be quite honest, I don't do enough. And imagine I have this beautiful bouquet of flowers. I open the door. There she is. I have this big smile on my face. And she goes, oh, thank you. How, oh, it's so beautiful. And I raise up my hand and go, it's my duty. All the romance would be extinguished. That's the last thing a woman wants to hear. No, she wants to hear, oh, because you love me. You've been thinking about me all day. You want to please me. You want to make me happy. Did Jesus pray out of duty? No. Should you pray out of duty? No. And too many do, don't they? Because they feel guilty and they feel condemned if they don't pray. I would say, yes, be compelled, be convicted by this message if you don't pray enough, if you don't pray at all, or if your prayer life is pitiful. God, God is merciful. He, he, he wants you to be in his presence more than you want to be in his presence. And he wants your ultimate desire to be in his presence, not just to say, okay, I prayed today, I'm good, as a duty, but because I love the presence of Jesus. I love Jesus himself. Oh, I want to be with him because he shares his heart with me. Now share my heart with him. And I'm edified and I'm encouraged. And that was the motivation for Jesus. I conclude with this. Worship team, come help me, please. But this isn't it. When Jesus died upon that cross, he said it was finished. He rose the third day. For 40 days, he was with the disciples. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. But that wasn't the end of Jesus' prayer life. Did you know this? Jesus still prays. We learn in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was an intercessor for men. He was a mediator, a go-between, in the same way that Moses was, and Abraham was, and David was, and Noah was an intercessor, a mediator between God and man. Jesus is the ultimate and final intercessor, the, the perfect high priest between God and and man. And Jesus, while even yet in his earthly ministry, he interceded for Peter, didn't he? Peter, I prayed for that your faith would not fail. In his high priestly prayer, he prayed for his disciples and he prayed for you and he prayed for me, for all those who would come to, future, come to faith in Christ in the future. And while yet on the cross, do you know that he was interceding for those 
who were spitting on him and hating him and nailing to the cross because what did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus was an intercessor. Jesus interceded through his prayer while even yet upon the cross. And as I said, he now in his glorified state, he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. He ever lives in 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that speaks for me and for you once and for all. The, blo the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all slain and poured out for me and for you. It is continuously, continuously covering us and presenting us as perfect in the presence of God the Father. He's our advocate. He's the go-between. He's the mediator. He intercedes even now. Where the devil accuses you in the presence of the Father, Jesus advocates for you. He intercedes for you. And he points to the sufficiency of his blood for those who have placed faith in him. So he ever lives to intercede. He ever lives to mediate between us and God. And so the end result here is not that just your head would be filled with a bunch of information and facts regarding the life of Jesus in regards to prayer. That's not my intention. I would hope right now you would have a greater desire an understanding of the necessity of prayer in your life because Jesus prayed. He often prayed. He often withdrew and prayed. He often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. And so if Jesus has prayed and every godly man of the word of, of, the word of God who has been used by God, they were men and women of prayer. They're men and women of prayer. Many of you are familiar with the, the psalm, Sweet Hour, of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Sweet hour of prayer, the joys I feel, the bliss I share of those whose anxious spirits burn with strong desire for thy return. With such, I hasten to the place where God my Savior shows his face and gladly take my station there and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer.